The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for tuning in today to learn more about healthcare news and investing. I'm joined by Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, and we're thrilled to welcome as our guest, Voss Narasimhan, the CEO of Novartis, the Switzerland-based pharmaceutical giant. Just for some background, Voss joined Novartis in 2005. He served in a variety of leadership positions before he was named CEO in 2017. He earned his MD and a master's in public policy at Harvard, and he's been transforming Novartis to focus on innovative medicines and the use of big data and other tech tools in drug development. Welcome, Voss and Josh. So glad to have you on Barron's Live today. Good to be here. Great to be here, Lauren. Boss, did you have a medical specialty when you trained as a doctor? Uh, I did not. I went. I actually worked in public health in uh, in developing countries with the World Health Organization and, and a few different areas in Africa. Okay, we've had a number of of MDs on on the call, but I want to start with the business news of the day. It's big news for Novartis. Your decision to spend up to fifteen billion dollars on stock buybacks using much of the money that you raised by selling your stake in Roche. Many people thought the company would use this money for acquisitions, and there's even been speculation about the companies you might acquire. So I wonder if you can talk to us a bit about what informed the decision to spend the money on buybacks. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Lauren. We, you know, when we looked at it, we, we want to ensure we're striking the right balance between investing to build the company, enable us to serve our mission to reimagine medicine uh, for patients, continue to grow, but also return excess capital from just to our shareholders. When you look at it, Novartis has a tremendously strong financial standing. And I think we have a strong free cash flow, a strong balance sheet. So when we looked at the totality of our position, we felt comfortable that we could both balance potential bolt-on M&As, which we might want to do in the future, with the share buyback that we announced today. Uh, and I think after doing that assessment over the last two weeks since we completed the transaction with Roche, we arrived that this was a, a, a reasonable place to be, return capital that we don't expect to need to our shareholders, but maintain the ability to do these bolt-on acquisitions. So it's been kind of a quieter year than many people expected in pharma M&A. How do you think things will play out in the year ahead? Always difficult to, to, to predict. I think there's a lot of factors, I think, playing into decision-making at the moment. I think one, of course, the, the Fed and the inflationary environment and how that might affect valuations and perspectives on more speculative areas such as biotech. Uh, I think second, the U.S. drug pricing environment and what ultimately happens with U.S. drug pricing will certainly factor into decision-making. And then fundamentally, I think valuations in general, which continue to be stretched for, for many for many biotech firms, making it difficult to create value-creating transactions. You know, that said, I think there's such so much excitement happening in the various areas of new technologies that are 
in biotech, also big companies like ours that um, I'm sure they'll continue to be activity as well in 2022. Can I ask a quick question on this? You know, um, but when we spoke a couple of weeks ago for, for an interview, I think you talked about um, having the opportunity to take your time to sort of think about uh, what to do with the cash from the Roche um, transaction. I wonder if there was something in the past couple of weeks that sped up the decision-making process or, or if, or, or, you know, or if this was always your timeline. I think, you know, once we, we completed the transaction, which I think was an important, important step mm -hmm. in the journey, we took it, you know, we had through the last couple of months, taken a careful look at the various M&A possibilities, tried to forecast out what are the kinds of things we might want to do, looked at our own cash position and where we thought uh, we would be over the coming period. And that allowed us, I think, to come back and take the perspective of, look, we think we can return 15 billion to our shareholders and maintain the firepower that we need to continue to do bolt-on M&A when it makes sense. And I think it's important to note, as we outlined in our release today, we feel confident in the growth of the company uh, in the coming period with six major growth drivers and a full portfolio of pipeline assets that we think that can grow the company 26 to 30. And then these platform technologies that we've been building that we think will enable us to grow in the long run. So I think taking all of that together, this felt like the right decision to take uh, once we'd carefully considered our options. And your ADR is up uh, 5% this morning, so or today rather. So investors seem to agree, uh, at least at this point. We've seen a lot of companies buy back stock that we've thought was very expensive. This seems to be a rare case where a company is buying stock back that's actually cheap. So I wonder um, what you make of the stock. Josh um, had some interesting statistics in a recent piece he wrote based on an interview with you, noting that the S&P Pharma index was lagging the broad index, was lagging the broad market, and Novartis was even lagging the index. It's down about 9% year to date. And the stock is also trading for a lower P multiple than peers. What do you think investors have been missing about the company? And what do you think will get them more excited about pharma stocks generally? Yeah, I'd say on, on both points. One, if you look at the pharma sector in general over the recent period, it's trading at, at really almost you know decade-long lows versus the, the S&P. Um, and I think that that's in part due to a lot of excitement in, in other sectors where uh, while there's less concrete delivery yet, there's a lot of speculation on high growth and pharma tends to be a very stable sector. I, I do believe over time there will be a rotation back given the strong capabilities of companies in our industry to consistently deliver growth given the growing needs of patients around the world for better and better healthcare. And I think if anything, we're entering a renaissance period with all of the new technologies, RNA, uh, gene therapies, cell therapies, radioligand therapies, targeted protein degradation that could open up whole new areas of medicine. I think for Novartis, you know, we had a, a rough patch where we had a couple of setbacks. And I think there was a reaction to those setbacks. Uh, and I think when you're in a sector that is under scrutiny and then you have a few setbacks that can lead to perhaps an overreaction on, on the shares. And uh, the good news for us is we have full confidence we'll be able to grow full stable of inline assets we have a full pipeline so i'm not too worried about an 18 month uh, situation that we're in and that's part of the reason why we feel comfortable doing this share buyback we view our shares are, are undervalued both versus our own internal valuation the consensus uh, outlook uh, as well and so that gave us confidence this was the right move to take 
Well, as Josh noted, investors seem to agree. So I want to backtrack now and take a look at the latest in COVID statistics. That's usually how we start this call. And reports from South Africa and the UK and elsewhere suggest the Omicron variant is about to hit the US in a big way. Josh, do you want to bring us up to date on where things stand, please? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, the as you say, the news is not great. Um, as of uh, for, for the week that ended Saturday, the CDC estimates that about 3% of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. were caused by Omicron, but that's going to climb. Uh, you know, as you can see, the, the Omicron wave is exploding in the U.K. They had a record number of new daily cases on Wednesday of 78,000, and again today of 88,000. The previous worst day in terms of new cases um, was only 68,000, so you can sort of see how... Uh, how, how this wave is, is looking a bit uh, fright, more frightening even than, than earlier waves. Um, uh, and in South Africa too, I mean, new cases are kind of headed up in a, in a pretty straight line. Um, as of Tuesday in South Africa, sorry, as of November 20th, they were averaging 500 new cases per day in South Africa. As of Tuesday, it's 21,900. Uh, um, and, and, you know, the, the other worrying thing is that even before Omicron really hits in the U.S., cases are climbing here. I mean, it's up uh, if you look now, it's about 46% over the last two weeks. Now, I, I think those numbers might be impacted a bit by the holidays, but still, um, cases are climbing uh, in the sort of, I guess, tail end of the Delta wave era, and yet um, we're headed for the next thing very quickly. And, you, you know, you're beginning to see Omicron clusters here. Um, Cornell uh, University shut down after finding some Omicron cases, and Princeton shut down, saying it, it thinks it has Omicron cases as well. Um so, uh, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of uncertainty heading into, into the next few weeks here. What's the situation like in Switzerland, Bus? Uh, currently in Switzerland, we do see uh, very high rates of uh, infection. Um, at the, case, the case breakdown is uh, a little less clear to me, at least. I think we do see some Omicron cases. Uh, I think it, you know, the there is an uptick in, in hospitalizations and ICU, which is really the metrics I watch. Uh, I tend not to watch cases. I'm happy to talk more about that. But um, and there is an, an uptick that I think is causing some some concern because there is still probably too high a proportion of, of uh, people here who are eligible for the vaccine who have not been vaccinated. So when you have a naive population uh, and then you have this increase in cases, you are going to see. Um, increases in healthcare utilization, which of course are concerning. They also crowd, crowd out patients who need other care from being able to get the care they, they need. Do you see lockdowns coming there? So far, I think the government's taken a measured approach, uh, step by step. So each week reassessing, um, no lockdowns, but more, uh, let's call it restrictions on uh, how people can utilize public facilities or, you know, in our, in, in the cases of large companies like Novartis, a request that people work from home whenever, uh, whenever possible to try to just limit transmission in the community. All right, Josh, tell us what is working against COVID at the moment in terms of medications. Well, look, there was a bunch of sort of confusing updates over the last week. Um, there was some good news. Uh, uh, Vera Biotechnology, uh, which collaborates with GlaxoSmithKline on a monoclonal antibody therapy, said that um, that it they released some research yesterday that said that it does seem to protect against Omicron. Um, in fact, if you look at the federal government's distribution of monoclonal antibody therapies for the last few weeks, they've held back Vera's um, and are using up supplies of other uh, monoclonal antibodies that have 
you know, that, that are not expected to be as effective. Um, they seem to be holding Veer's back to you, or Veer and Glaxo's back to use when Omicron hits harder here. Um, you know, there's others that may not. There, there was a, a sort of strange story with a, a company called um, Adagio Therapeutics. They have an experimental monoclonal antibody that could be used as a prophylaxis. They had said early on when Omicron was first emerging that they expected that it would work against Omicron. They went on CNBC to talk about it. Then this week they had a lab test saying it doesn't work. The stock really went down um, very, very sharply. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like 80%. Now this wow. morning there's an analyst note saying that there's <laughs> other other labs have run tests that show that it might work. Anyway, uh, quite volatile situation. The bottom line is I think uh, people, you know, we're still learning and, and confident assertions about what is and what isn't going to work may be um, premature. You know, the other big, big question here is the vaccines. As everyone knows by now, uh, last week, Pfizer and BioNTech said that three doses of the vaccine probably, you know, will Omicron, uh, neutralize Omicron well, and the antibodies induced by three doses, whereas two doses might not. That could mean that, you know, three doses does a pretty good job of preventing infection, and two might be enough to present, prevent serious illness. This week, there was a real-world study from South Africa that basically confirmed this and said, uh, you know, in this sort of real-world world experience during the Omicron wave, um, two doses is providing 70% protection against hospitalization. Um, and whereas uh, the, the two doses that, um, whereas, whereas earlier waves, it was it was, it was was better. Um, uh, and, and in terms of the protection against infection, uh, two doses is only of the Pfizer vaccine is only providing about 33% protection, which is, uh, you know, less good than during Delta when it was more like 80%. This um, is all pretty alarming. So, Voss, Novartis has te had teamed up with a small Australian biotech to develop a COVID cell therapy, and it didn't work as many things in the business of drug development don't. But what did you learn from the effort and what's next for the company, if anything, on the COVID front? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we did we did terminate our agreement with uh, Mesoblast. That was, uh, I think, a very novel approach to use uh, a, a sort of um, cell therapy for severe COVID, where uh, the only thing that works is dexamethasone, another drug that Novartis produces through our Sandoz, a generics unit, and makes available to, to patients around the world. Right now, we have um, two main efforts ongoing. One is a partnership with Molecular Partners, where we're running a phase 2B study uh, with something called a DARPIN. DARPIN are nationally occurring um, neutralizing proteins, uh, sort of like an antibody, but very, actually really quite different. Um, Molecular Partners reported out in their laboratory tests that uh, the DARPINs uh, are uh, highly efficacious in vitro. Uh, so it's in vitro in lab versus Omicron versus the, the other antibodies. That's because in the DARPINs, uh, there's three different DARPINs that target three different parts of the spike protein. We expect clinical trial data and that phase 2B study, the interim data to be available in, in January. And then separate from that, we have our own research work on, um, on a, a, let's call it next generation protease inhibitor uh, that would be hopefully pan-coronavirus. We're trying to get that into the clinic um, next year. And I think my broad thoughts on the pandemic is we have to continue to watch two broad trends. I mean, one is how the virus is evolving because viruses like respiratory viruses like this one generally evolve to become less severe and more transmissible, uh, similar to the four coronaviruses that normally transmit in, in human populations. 
Um, and so this would be the fifth, and you'd expect it to move in that direction. We don't know yet if that's what happen what's happening with Omicron. And the second is the human immune system. With each, with each exposure, my background is in, in vaccines and vaccine development, with each exposure to the, the virus, the, the immune system is not only learning with respect to antibodies, but more importantly, the T-cell and so-called B-cell memory repertoire, which is giving us, uh, each person, broader and broader sets of antibodies that can hopefully then protect uh, individuals from uh, severe disease and hospitalization and maybe just leave them with a, a common cold-like symptom. These two things are happening in real time around the world. Eventually, we'll get to an endemic steady state. The question is when and how and, and how much collateral damage is going to happen around the way. Uh, along the way, I've been watching carefully the decoupling data that Shabir Mahdi and others have looked at within South Africa, and it would seem that at least in their data sets that there is a decoupling between severe disease and the Omicron variant. We don't know if that's because these patients are younger, if they've had prior exposures, but there's certainly some interesting trends that we'll, we'll certainly learn more in the coming weeks. It's it's fascinating, but not exactly what we'd hope to be studying right now. Absolutely. So going back to the business, um, Novartis, like J&J &J and Pfizer and Merck and other pharmas, has been slimming down in recent years to focus more exclusively on biopharma development. And I wonder, what's the thinking behind this? And why does the industry think it's beneficial for shareholders to strip away some of the stable cash cow businesses, some of the consumer-focused businesses, which have provided benefits of diversification? It's an interesting, you know, uh, moment in time. And of course, if you go back far enough in business histories, uh, you know that these in sectors go in waves. There's waves of building conglomerates and, and waves of slimming down. I personally think this is driven by the technology that I mentioned earlier that, that is really reshaping the biopharmaceutical industry that's forcing companies to have to focus their capital and focus their management teams to stay at the leading edge of science. Um, I think when we were probably an industry primarily of chemistry and maybe a little bit of monoclonal antibodies, it was possible to focus not only in pharmaceuticals, but perhaps in consumer health, and animal health, uh, in generics and vaccines, all of these different areas. Now, as the science moves so fast, uh, we're, we're now re reprogramming the genome, we're editing human cells, we're rethinking what the kind of payloads we deliver with antibodies, we're targeting diseases that we never thought we would be able to in the ways we are today. It's, fo it's, it's forcing companies to focus, have to focus capital and management attention. And so you see, I think, a trend in the sector. We've been, of course, on this journey now for many years to slim down and focus in innovative medicines to stay um, competitive. I don't know if that lasts for 20 years, but I certainly think for the next 10 to 15 years, that's going to be the continuing trend. So it's a bit of a paradigm shift in the science and in the management of these companies. I, I think so. And, you, and you'll see, you really see it across the sector that companies are more and more moving beyond traditional small molecules and antibodies now into all of these other areas. That requires attention, know-how, expertise, capital. You have to build up new manufacturing supply chains, as we've learned. Uh, new development capabilities, uh, new new technical people you have to bring in. And of course, that all that's complex. And I think that wasn't the case when we were primarily focused on uh, pills and maybe the odd injection. Now that we have all of these different technologies we have to manage, 
you need you need focused attention, focused capital in order to succeed. Although you, I wonder if you could argue that you know the, the nature, the sort of cutting edge nature of these technologies you're describing them describing makes them more risky as investments for the companies and. And 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 in that case, that um, you know, having something stable like a consumer health business um, would actually sort of be beneficial in 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 the sort of um, uh, you know balancing out those riskier investments. You know, the challenge I think becomes cap the capital allocation challenge when you have sure. such variable return on on capital, return on invested capital, return on capital employed measures between the businesses. Uh, and I think that, you know, those are depending on the category are, are generally widening. And so when you have uh, biopharmaceutical businesses, which are having much higher returns, though risky for sure, but much higher returns than other segments within healthcare, it becomes harder to make the, those trade-offs. And I think it was easier when it wasn't requiring new capital to go into the biopharmaceutical side, you could say, well, we'll reallocate capital. But now I think given how fast science is moving to trade off, I have to keep investing in a business that is, you know, less technologically intensive. Mm -hmm. um, when I have the opportunity to keep investing at the high end technology and potentially get you know bigger returns and also bigger impact for patients. That's the trade offs. I think that many companies are facing now. What are some of the medical innovations that you're most excited about? Some of these new things on the horizon and in the lab. Yeah, I think a few, and, and we've tried to, to really build a position in, in a few of them. I mean, so so one uh, high under my mind at the moment is RNA interference. We recently launched a medicine called Letvio to treat hypercholesterolemia in 50 countries. We're awaiting a regulatory decision in the U.S. And the idea here is using RNA interference, which uh, is using a small piece of RNA to block the transcription of an RNA into a protein in liver cells, you can turn a cholesterol treatments that take either pills two or three times a day or daily or weekly injections into a twice a year injection that the physician just gives you in the office and you have over a 50% lowering of cholesterol. Now this, this will enable us to be one of the largest producers, if not the largest of RNAi in the world. And we think you know RNA, what we call xRNA, so all of the different RNA therapeutics, even putting aside mRNA, which everyone has learned a lot about, Right, it's going to become a, a big, you know, big field uh, of medicine. Um, the other two on my mind is cell therapy and gene therapy. So, gene therapy, we have a drug called Zolgensma, which can treat children with a near fatal condition and bring them back almost to a normal life. And I, and while it's really hard sledding in this kind of scientific area, I do believe in the back half of this decade we're going to be able to develop many new gene therapies. And we're trying to position ourselves as a leader. To treat these therapies, these are one-time therapies, and you can treat pretty severe diseases with these one-time therapies. And then, last, another area where you know the science is tough; it's moving. But we even heard last week more advances is the idea you can take human cells out of the body, edit them, and put them back in, and again treat very severe conditions. In our world, that's for leukemia. Other companies presented data on sickle cell disease and related conditions. So these are pretty extraordinary advances that we're we're talking about that have really just happened in the last couple of years. We've seen a lot of excitement, but also a lot of failures in the gene therapy area. How far away do you think we are from really commercializing this in a widespread way? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and and, and as always, you know you. You, you go through these periods where initially you have some successes and, and we have a prominent one, a blockbuster medicine, as I mentioned, Zolgensma. 
Um, and then you go through the, the kind of valley of learning how hard this is to expand into other areas. And gene therapy turns out to be very complex science, more complicated than probably ourselves and other companies thought it would be. Nonetheless, I think what we're learning, the companies that kind of stick it out are, I think, solving these problems. And we know the therapies work if you can figure out how to deliver them to the right tissue in the right way. And then you have the opportunity for these one-time therapies to tackle you know, really terrible conditions, either genetic conditions that cause severe disability in children or adults, or even you could wonder, could you treat uh, neurodegenerative diseases that afflict, whether it's ALS or Huntington's or, or you know, these kinds of, of conditions uh, as well. So a lot of possibilities, but I think we're still five years out from further expansion. But it's a fascinating time to be in the industry and, and to be watching all of this. I want to go to some listener questions. We've got quite a few. So I'll start with one from Pete. He asks, what are your plans for Sandoz? This is the generic drug division of Novartis. And you've talked about evaluating the future of this business. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with Sandoz, we announced a strategic review, and it's really the goal of the strategic review is to figure out how do we best position Sandoz to be the leading uh, generics company in the world, and how do we then best position um, Sandoz either within Novartis or outside of Novartis. So all options are on the table from spinning out the company, merging the company, uh, looking at, and I, and I think it's been reported in the press, there's been quite a bit of private equity interest, or of course, uh, the default option could always be to, to keep the company. And so we're looking at all of those options. It does take time, uh, given how enmeshed Sandoz is within Novartis. Now that we've announced, we can really figure out what is the carved out standalone uh, Sandoz financials, provide those to various counterparties, evaluate the options. And we're confident we can come to a decision, uh, as we said, within the next year. Okay, thank you. Doug asks, how is AI, that's artificial intelligence, being used at Novartis and in the drug and biotech industry generally with regard to drug development and therapies to treat a variety of diseases? Yeah, absolutely. AI is, I think, proving itself to be a valuable tool. I think there's limitations because AI is only as good as the data that, that we put into it. And it's worth for always remembering uh, in every human cell, you have about 2 billion years of evolution and, and complexity. Uh, and you have in the human body, you know, I think 40 trillion types of uh, 40 trillion cells. And you start multiplying out, the complexity is vast. Nonetheless, where AI has, I think, shown the most impact for us has been one in mining clinical trial data sets and looking for how we optimize our clinical trials, both in the design and where we place those clinical trials in countries around the world. So that's one area I would call it development operations and clinical trial mining, AI. There we work with Palantir uh, as our one of the partner companies that, that we work with, and then also with Microsoft. And then, you know, separate from that, I think there's been a lot of interest in the power of AI to help identify new um, drug structures. So DeepMind has published a database of uh, protein folding um, and then also, can you optimize the drugs that are against those, those targets? So a lot happening in the space. We still have yet to have a drug that's truly AI designed come to market, but it's probably just a matter of time. Okay. Um, always an interesting question about that. 
Alberto asks, and this reflects a number of other questions we've gotten, considering the experiences following COVID, of, considering the experience of COVID and socio-political pressures, is big pharma at risk of becoming a regulated utility with price caps, forced sharing of know-how and patents, and politically acceptable profit margins? This is a big issue in the U.S., Absolutely. I don't think so. And I think one of the things you saw with the uh, evolution of the discussions in the U.S. Congress regarding um, U.S. drug pricing was a realization that you need a vibrant uh, ecosystem. You need a vibrant system that re rewards risk taking. And if you really want to find the next wave of medicines and it, it's worth noting, I mean, there are you know so many diseases, including most types of cancer, where we just need much better medicines to give patients long and healthy lives or give people long and healthy lives. And I think that recognition is what led to the shifts in that policy, uh, still probably not optimal for what we think would make sense. But nonetheless, I think in general, and if you look at COVID as a class case study, our sector, um, between the vaccines being developed, the drugs being developed, the antibodies being developed, are providing the route out of one of the greatest uh, challenges the world has faced in a century. And I think there's a recognition you have to keep a, a vibrant economic and market-based system to enable that innovation to happen. How concerned are you about price controls being, being imposed, Medicare price controls and so forth? You know, I think that the latest language has come down to a, a place that is, is still very concerning, but certainly far away from, from price controls. Um, I think there's still likely to be a lot of uh, distortions and um, unforeseen consequences as the way the bill is, is, currently, is currently written. The, the big positive is that the new design, the design of the Part D program would enable patients to have out-of-pocket caps at the pharmacy counter and not be... Uh, unable to afford their medicines. And I think that's what we all want. And so I think that's a, a great positive of this bill. Many things that I think um, will have unforeseen consequences, but that's the most important step the bill takes. And if it ultimately gets enacted, I think Part D patients around the United States will certainly be able to afford their medicines uh, day in and day out. How does drug pricing here differ from what you see in Europe? Uh, you, you know, Europe is is very regulated in terms of how it approaches drug pricing, but also uh, most new medicines take far longer to, to come into European healthcare, if at all. Um, and so there's significant delays, significant restrictions. And so um, that's that is the trade off that one has to, to understand is that here in, in Europe, you just have a, a very different accessibility to the best best medicines. I'd also note, I mean, the U.S. has a much higher value that the U.S. government and U.S. society pay, places on a quality adjusted life here than many European countries. In U.S., the benchmark is around $150,000 per quality uh, adjusted life year. And that's the cost effectiveness benchmark used in the U.S., not just in healthcare across sectors. And in Europe, it can be one third or one quarter of that. So it's also important just to reflect on the values of different societies when you think about this, this question. Do not underestimate the vitality of America. So Absolutely. we have a, a question from Cindy, and I don't know anything about this, so um, perhaps you can enlighten us. She asks, can you talk about your unbossed philosophy that you've implemented at the company? 
the concept is not, is it a concept that is understood among the ranks? What is it exactly? Yeah, absolutely. So when I came into the role, um, we really thought about what is the, the culture that Novartis needs to succeed in the long run. And when you look at it, all of the research suggests that you want people who feel empowered, so unbossed, who feel the ability to learn and grow, curious, um, and feel a sense of purpose, so inspired. So we created a culture, we call it Inspired, Curious, and Unbossed. We rolled it out across the company, now we're four years in. It really asks leaders to be much more about serving their people, uh, removing obstacles, creating possibilities, and for people to have a complete ownership mindset. Um, unbossed was a concept that actually originated in, in Denmark and that, uh, you know, I guess I adopted for, or adapted or we adapted for Novartis. And it's been hugely successful thus far. I mean, we've seen it really improve the engagement in the company. When we look at various measurements, um, the overall, I think, commitment to Novartis has gone up. We saw that through the pandemic. And now we're really trying to use this as a strategic lever to get us to perform even better, given that we have this culture very broadly known. I feel reasonably confident if you ask anyone who works at Novartis, they certainly at least have a view, certainly understand the unbossed, inspired, curious culture we're trying to build. Okay. Interesting. I, I did not know about that. I think Josh may have a question or two for you before we sign off. If you don't mind. Yeah. You know, you alluded earlier to having some thoughts on, on the pandemic. And I, and I wondered if, if, you know, you have any broad, broad things you could say about where you expect this to go and, and, and what you think is going to happen in, in the first parts of 2022 with regard to um, the sort of state of, of COVID. Yeah. I mean, I think, any prognosticator in in, uh, in this particular pandemic probably uh, is is uh, um, gonna gonna lose the, lose the bet. But you know, when I look at it, still I, I come back to the broad strokes of how viruses evolve, and, and and I continue to believe when you look at coronaviruses historically, when you look at this coronavirus, uh, it will continue to evolve towards being high, more transmissible and less severe or less pathogenic. Because that's kind of the sweet spot from an evolutionary standpoint for a virus. So that process is happening. It will happen in fits and starts. It'll happen in perhaps in, in ways that you know impact healthcare systems as we're seeing now with the Omicron virus. But that is where the virus will over time head. At least that's what evolution would tell us. And I truly believe, having studied the human immune system, that the immune system, our ability to build T cell memory, and as people either get exposed to the virus through multiple vaccinations and or asymptomatic slash symptomatic exposure to the virus, the immune system will get stronger and stronger as it does to the seasonal coronaviruses and seasonal rhinoviruses and the seasonal parainfluenza viruses that we all have had our entire lives. And we're going to get to that steady state. I would have predicted it would have been in about two years from the start of the pandemic when you look historically. So we're about there now. It looks like it's going to go longer than that. So that prediction was was probably not the best one. But I would still continue to expect, as long as we can keep getting more and more people vaccinated, including people in developing countries, uh, and as, as long as we continue to be thoughtful about how we do public health measures, we'll eventually get to an endemic state. And it will be an endemic virus. And I believe it'll be the fifth coronavirus that normally circulates in human populations. Hmm. Somewhat encouraging to think of it weakening over time. I make no promises, though, Lauren. It's just a prediction. Right. 
<laughs> I think I think that's fair. Athono asked an interesting question. What black swan event could upend the healthcare market? Isn't the nature of black swan event that we can't predict it? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a trick question. Uh, any I'm thoughts about that? We, we've seen COVID upend our world, but what are yeah, some things that um, really upend the market for healthcare and healthcare delivery? Oh, that's a good question. And not one that I've... Uh, Funny, I've never gotten that question. I always feel like I've got an answer to everything, and I don't. I don't have a ready, ready answer, ready answer um, to to that. I mean, I think the only the only thing would be, but it would really be a surprise. But somebody mentioned it earlier: is that if if you started to treat healthcare broadly as like the like a like a utility, but that would of course not really be a black swan event. It'd be a real movement to switch around how healthcare works, and I think you'd lose the dynamism not just in pharmaceuticals and biotech, but also probably in providers. And, and so you would have kind of a truly, you know, less vibrant healthcare ecosystem. But I don't see anything else. I mean, I think that the goal of, if you think about what, if you really take a step back, I think Steven Pinker talks about this uh, quite eloquently, is the greatest achievement in mankind in recent centuries has been the lengthening of life and the improvements of quality of life. And most of us don't even think about how much that's improved in just one generation or two generations. And I think that desire for humanity to keep extending life, improving the quality of life for each other, for, for ourselves, for our family, is just so strong that healthcare be, remains just such a resilient sector in the long run because of that. I think we're going to close on that upbeat note. So I thank you very much, Voss, for joining me today and Josh for joining as well. This has been a terrific call. And we thank our listeners for tuning in. And thanks for your great questions. Tomorrow, tomorrow on Barron's Live, the topic is bubbly. You heard that right. We're talking about champagne. Cult Wine CEO Tom Gearing and Atul Tawari, CEO Americas of Cult Wines, will talk about champagne's rising star as an investment asset with Penta senior writer Abby Schultz. They will also talk about investing in wine including the company's foray into NFTs. And with that, I want to offer a toast to today's great guests, to our thoughtful audience, and to our wonderful producer, Crystal, who is never seen or heard, but makes Barron's Live work the way it does. Thank you, everybody. Stay well and have a good day. Thanks, Lauren. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.